All right. All right. Good morning, Willow Hills. How are you doing? Hello, pod listeners. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for joining us. You know, the, the worship team got so rowdy. I don't know if you noticed this, but they were so rowdy up here. The, the, our communion cup fell over and broke. They broke the communion chalice. The Holy Grail has been broken. So maybe this communion, uh, well, we're going to have the bread, but no blood. Or, or, uh, or what we should just do is kind of reverse the elements. Instead of having the broken bread, we'll just celebrate the broken cup, right? And, and, Jesus is flexible. Uh, we could just use this cup, you know, because this, this, it was an ordinary cup. Uh, and, and yeah, they didn't have this back then, but we're, we're contemporizing today. So, so that will suffice for the communion cup there. And you, are, you were here at the first service. A couple of you were, you're getting too saved. You got to stop that. It's just like you're getting, you're getting too holy. It's like, you need it twice as much as everyone else. All right, all right. Okay. Excellent. Well, we're, uh, this is the second part of this series that we're doing on hospitality. And so let's start with a little review. The word hospitality is philiozania. Philiozania. Everyone say philiozania. Philiozania. Lock that word in. Uh, it's an important word. Philio is the word for love, and xenos is the word for other, or foreigner, or stranger. And so philiozania is the love for the stranger. And so that's what we're talking about here. Um, see, most folks spend almost all their time in, in a, a kind of cloistered group of those that you're familiar with and those that you're comfortable with. Uh, it's kind of normal human behavior, at least in this fallen world. And so we tend to ignore and maybe even avoid the Zanus people, the people that are different from us. We tend to, social scientists tell us, tend to have a, uh, an us-them mindset. What, part of the cohesion of any particular social group is that we are us and they are them. Uh, and we do it this way and they do it that way. And we like to stay inside of the us and not venture out into the, the, the them. Uh, not only do we sometimes or usually avoid the Zanus folks, but there tends to be, at least at times, uh, a, a sort of suspicion towards the folks that are different from us, whose maybe appearance is different, culture is different, language is different. There tends to be a suspicion. You know, what are they hiding under that hajib? You know, what's going on with that? That looks weird. And then in some contexts, such as we find ourselves in right now, that suspicion can turn into overt fear. And that's xenophobia. Zenos foreigner, stranger, other, plus phobia, which is fear. So xenophobia is the fear of the other. Historically, this happens most frequently when the dominant majority uh, is feeling like their dominance is being challenged or threatened by the minority. And um, they develop xenophobic attitudes towards them. Those people, they're, they're, they're going to undermine our way of life. Those people, they, they're going to they're uh, take away our jobs and attack our kids. And those people are going to eventually take over and, 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 and you know, it won't be the same. Those are xenophobic kind of sentiments. Kingdom people, we are called to have the opposite of xenophobia. We're called to have a philiozania, a love for the other. Not a fear, but a love. And this is, I mean, this is always a front burner, top priority issue, but right now, I think in our country, it's so imperative that we put on display the opposite of xenophobia. You know, historically, there is a small gap. It doesn't take much for the dominant majority not just to fear the minority, but to strike out against the minority, which is why our present climate is of some great concern. Um, and so this is the time, people of God, where we are to put, us, put off all xenophobia and embrace philiozania, a love for the other. We're to love the stranger. 
the foreigner, the person who's different from us, and to love them in concrete ways so that they no longer feel like a stranger. Not an abstract kind of a love, but a, a demonstrable kind of a love, welcoming in the stranger. And in doing that, we collapse the us-them dynamic. We want to prove the social scientists wrong because the kingdom is to be an us without a them. An all-inclusive us because our love is to be all-inclusive. And to see every, every them as part of us so there is no them. And that's the title of this ser series. There is no them. We're an us without a them. So last week I, 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 I spelled out kind of the theological foundation of this. And the theological foundation of this is, is simply this, that when we were strange, estranged from God, we were as far away from God as possible, dead in our sins. When we were in that condition, God demonstrated extravagant filiozenea to, to us. Uh, God made space for us. God ripped open his heart on the cross for us. He made space for us to welcome us into his own household, to be considered as family, to be, to be brought as near as possible. We were as far as possible, but now we're brought as near as possible. God demonstrated extravagant filozenea to, to us. Uh, the creator of the universe is all about sharing. It, it just hit me, that last song we were singing. I, for some reason, it was just... It, at the center of everything, we exist because God shares. Everything's about his sharing. He shares. He shares and he even sacrifices to share. And in light of that, we are called and empowered to replicate that to all others. The, the philozenia that we have received is the philozenia that we are to give to all others. As Paul says uh, in, in Romans, he says, welcome, welcome others the way Christ, the, the, the same way Christ has welcomed you. Look what Christ did to welcome us. We are to be willing to do that to others, to the stranger, to the one who's outside of our, our, our sphere of what is comfortable and those who are familiar to us. And Jesus said, we saw this last week, that, that if you only greet those that you're comfortable and familiar with, well then, what's the reward in that? Everyone does that. He, he says, put on display the distinct kingdom character of, of, of your father by greeting those. Go out of your way to make those that you don't know, that are unfamiliar to you, uh, to make them feel welcome. It's an explicit teaching, Matthew 5, 46 and 47. And so I gave a challenge last week. Um, that's got to start here. That's got to start here. Uh, if, if, if we can't be... Uh, overflowing with hospitality towards one another when we come together on the weekend services, how are we ever going to get good at showing hospitality to strangers out there? And so I encourage people, when you come to church, um, commit, commit to welcoming, introducing yourself, getting to know at least one person or one family that you don't yet know. And we do a little of that before we sit down, and that's great. That, that's, that, that's a little bit of hospitality. But I encourage you before the service and after the service to have your eyes open for the person that you don't know and go up and just greet them and give them your name and welcome them to the church. And if it goes someplace somewhere beyond that, that's, that's, that's beautiful too. The trick is to remember to do that. Okay, so we'll all do that maybe after the service, uh, but after this one, but how about next week or a year from now? And so whatever it takes to remember this, please lock it in. I mean, a lot of us have iPhones, and there's a lady inside the iPhone that remembers everything. She's brilliant. So just tell her to remind you every Sunday to practice feelers in A when you go to church. Or if you've got to use post-it notes on your mirror or toilet seat or Bible or whatever, do that, whatever it takes. Let's remember to do that. <laughs> Here's the thing. We want to be a community that demonstrates the love of God, and what else would you want to do? I mean, that's, that, that's, that's the bullseye. Well, we have to be a community that demonstrates uh, extravagant hospitality. And um, uh, 
we are the church. There's no Woodland Hills Church other than those of us that, that are gathered together and, and are part of Woodland Hills Church. So if this is your spiritual body, uh, you are the church, and that means we each have to take responsibility for this. There's no abstract Woodland Hills Church that's going to be hospitable unless you are hospitable. And so let's each one of us commit to doing that when we come together, uh, practicing filiozenea. So this morning I want to look at two passages, important passages, convicting passages. Are you ready to get convicted? Okay. Because as I shared last week, I'm all about sharing misery. This stuff has convicted me, and I just I don't want to suffer alone. So I'm inviting you in on this, all right? Two passages. The first one is the most frequently appealed passage throughout church history, uh, the most frequently appealed passage to when we're talking about hospitality. It's, it's found in Matthew 25, and it's the judgment day. And Jesus is now addressing the sheep that are his people on his right and the goats that are not on his left. I'm not going to read the whole passage because it's pretty long, but here is the, the gist of it. Matthew 25, he says, Come, you that are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Now listen to this. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me in. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you took care of me. I was in prison and you visited me. Truly I tell you, just as you did it, to one of the least of these who are my members of my family, you did it to me. But then he says to those on the left hand, the goats, he says, you that are accursed, depart from me into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger and you did not welcome me. Naked and you did not give me clothing. Sick and in prison and you did not visit me. Truly, I tell you, just as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. Bam! Let me first get this uh, question off the table. Um, some of you may be, as you're looking at that, what struck you is, what's this thing about eternal fire? Uh, is God really going to have angels and people in eternal fire, a never-ending fire? And that has been the traditional view of, of hell. Um, I'll just say that uh, I preached a sermon called Hell in a Nutshell back on March 1st, 2015. And if that's an issue that concerns you, I encourage you to look at that. Because I would agree that that, that does not seem like something that a loving, merciful, perfectly loving, perfectly merciful God would do. Uh, we don't have a doctrine about this at Woodland Hills Church, but I'll just say this, that my own personal view is that uh, God would never allow people to be, or angels to be suffering consciously in hell. There's other ways of interpreting those passages. I can't get into them now. Uh, but, um, uh, and that's not a doctrine. We don't have a doctrine about that. There's a lot of different opinions on that. Uh, it's bad. <laughs> At the very least, you, get the, the, you don't want to go, be going on that road. But uh, that's for another sermon. Just wanted to address that. The important thing for us to see here, one of the important things for us to see is that here Jesus makes our willingness to share with, show compassion, to practice hospitality to the stranger in need. He makes that the criteria that distinguishes the goats from the sheep. It's the same teaching he gives, basically, when, when he says in Matthew 5, um, love like the Father loves, love indiscriminately, love like the rain falls, love like the sun shines, um, love without an off button, so that you may be children of your Father in heaven. That's his phrase. So the ability to love like the Father loves, which were given by God's grace, the power of his spirit, 
Um, that is the distinguishing characteristic of a child of God now and of a child of God in the future. And if we're loving indiscriminately, it will be loving beyond the borders of who we're familiar with and comfortable with. If we're loving indiscriminately, it will include the stranger and even include the enemy. And so that's the distinguishing mark. But what's really mind-boggling and revelatory about this passage is that Jesus personally identifies with the stranger in need. When I was hungry, you gave me something to eat. When I was thirsty, you gave me something to drink. When I was naked, when I was in prison, when I was sick. Um, he personally identifies. So when we do it to the stranger, we're doing it to Jesus. But when we don't do it to the stranger, we're not doing it to Jesus. He says to the goats, I was hungry and you didn't share your food. I, I, I was naked, you didn't share your clothes. I was sick and you didn't have enough time. Um, Jesus personally identifies with the, the, the stranger in need. That's why practicing filiozenia is extremely important. I, I want to be clear on this, that Jesus isn't saying that the sheep earned the right to get into the kingdom because they did good deeds, good deeds to strangers. No one earns anything in the kingdom because there's no accounting system in the kingdom, all right? Uh, our right standing with God is all by God's grace. But what Jesus is saying here is this. The, the, the sheep are welcomed into the, the hospitable kingdom because they were hospitable. They're, they're welcomed into the kingdom. Uh, they're welcomed by Jesus because they had already welcomed Jesus in, right? Uh, and they did it when they welcomed in the stranger. And the goats are not welcomed in. They're dismissed because they'd already dismissed Jesus. You see, the, 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 the judgment day isn't about God imposing sentences on people. Um, it's just about pulling back the screen of all facades to reveal what is true. And so what gets revealed on the judgment day are, is people's true character. And, and what, what's in question is, 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 your, is your character um, the, the, compatible with God or not? Is it compatible with the hospitable kingdom or not? Um, and, and so the, that's the criteria in the future, and that's really the criteria now. We answer that question about whether it's compatible by, by how we live now. Are we cultivating the kind of mind and heart and lifestyle that is welcoming of Jesus? And if we are, it will be evidenced by the fact that we're welcoming strangers, and so we'll naturally be compatible with the hospitable kingdom. But folks who aren't cultivating that, aren't practicing hospitality, aren't welcoming strangers, well, that will be evidenced by the fact that they're not reaching out to, to, to strangers in need, and they'll, they'll naturally not be compatible with the hospitable kingdom. Insofar as you do it to the least of these, my, my brothers, you do it unto me. And so the bottom line, folks, is that, that by God's grace, we are empowered, if we'll, if we'll yield to it, we're empowered to replicate God's hospitality to us and then cultivate a life that's compatible with God. And so on the judgment day, we're welcomed in because we're compatible. Now, that, this gospel, I'm aware, blows sky high the standard sort of truncated American gospel that many of us were given. Uh, that gospel that says that what the gospel is all about is believing the right things and accepting Jesus into your heart so that you go to heaven when you die. That's what I was taught anyways. And um, notice here that Jesus doesn't ask one theological question. Isn't that interesting? It, 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 the judgment day isn't about passing a theology test. Uh, it's, in fact, the, the, the sheep don't, weren't even aware that they were doing this to Jesus when they treated kindly the stranger in need. They, they weren't even aware of that. So it's, it's not about what you know. Um, it, 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 this, it flies in the face of the standard American gospel. It, it makes it perfectly clear. And there's a number of other passages that do the same thing. 
but it makes it clear that, that um, uh, accepting Jesus into your heart doesn't mean a whole lot if you're not accepting the stranger into home when they're homeless. All right? Accepting Jesus into your heart doesn't mean much if you're not sharing your food with Jesus when he's hungry, or if you're not spending time with Jesus when he's sick and, and, or in prison, if you're not willing to share your clothes with Jesus when he's naked. And so far as you do it to the least of these, my brethren, you do it to, 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 to me. Now, what we're up against here is that our culture systematically conditions us not to do that. We're, we're systematically conditioned to pay all of our attention and all of our concern on our, ourselves and our loved ones. And it's important to pay attention to your own welfare and the welfare of, of your loved ones. But everyone does that. At least all decent people do that. Heck, even the animal kingdom does that. Uh, we are called to have a concern that goes beyond that. And that includes, has space for, the stranger that is in need. And showing love to the stranger in need is one of the distinct marks of the, the child of God. Insofar as you do it to the least of these, you do it unto me. So the question is, can we cultivate a mind that, is, is, that notices and cares about Jesus and the stranger? Mother Teresa said it like this. To welcome Jesus in, this is how you really accept Jesus into your heart. To welcome Jesus means, it means seeing, seeing and adoring the presence of Jesus in the stressing disguise of the poor. Mother Teresa seeing and adoring the presence of Jesus in the stressing disguise of the poor. So the question is, folks, can, can we see Jesus in the disguise of the hungry and the naked and the thirsty and the sick and the prisoner? Can we see Jesus in the disguise? Will we have space in our brain and our heart and in our life to recognize Jesus in the disguise of that disabled person that, that really has contact with the rest of the world? Can we see Jesus in the disguise of uh, the, the neighbor whose husband just walked out on her. Can we see Jesus in the, in, the, in the stressing disguise of that fearful illegal immigrant that lives two blocks away from our house? Can we see Jesus in, in the, the stressing disguise of maybe the elderly lady in the parking lot who obviously needs help getting her groceries in the car? Or in that, that, that teenager, that gay teenager that you know is getting bullied on, 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 on the internet? Can we see Jesus in the disguise of the Middle Eastern clerk who others sometimes view with suspicion? Can we see Jesus in the disguise of the person out in the gathering area who's standing all alone or in the worship hall here sitting by themselves? Can we cultivate a heart that goes beyond that? Because insofar as we do it to the least of these, it may seem like such a little thing, but Jesus identifies with the least of these and that makes it a very, very big thing. Amen? Amen. Amen. Okay, the second passage I want to look at is uh, the second most appealed to passage in, in, in church history when it comes to teaching on hospitality, and that's the famous story of the Good Samaritan. So it starts off like this. There's this lawyer, and to be a lawyer in, in, in this Jewish first century context means you're a specialist in the Old Testament law. So this lawyer comes to Jesus and says, what do I got to do to inherit an eternal life? And Jesus says, you tell me. You're the lawyer. I, you know, you're an expert. What does your law say? This is a Boyd paraphrase. Uh, and... Um, uh, so the guy says, well, it says you're supposed to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, body, and soul, and all your strength, and, and to love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus says, bravo, you nailed it, go and do likewise. But then we read this. But wanting to justify himself, he asked Jesus, and who exactly is my neighbor? So Jesus replies with a story, as he often does. A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. And fell into the hands of robbers who stripped him, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. 
Now, by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, the Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, he passed by on the other side of the road. But a Samaritan, while traveling, came near him. He didn't pass by on the other side of the road. And when he saw him, he was moved with pity. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, having poured oil and wine on them. And then he put him on his own animal, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii, gave them to the innkeeper, and said, Take care of him, and when I come back, I will repay you whatever more you spend. Which of these do you think, Mr. Lawyer, was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The lawyer said, well, the one who showed him mercy. So Jesus said, once again, go and do likewise. Okay, there's some powerful stuff here. Powerful stuff here. Uh, a couple things we should notice. No, number one, notice why Jesus tells this story. He tells this story because this lawyer wanted to justify himself. And he tries to justify himself by asking, well, who is my neighbor? Let's get into a long discussion about that. Actually, rabbis in the first century debated this quite a bit. This is a hot topic. Who is my neighbor? Um, who am I responsible for? Is it just people I know, uh, I'm familiar with? Uh, or does it include people I don't know? Uh, does it include, uh, does the Israelites I know? Or does it include Israelites I don't know? Does it include all Israelites? Or does it, does it also include some non-Israelites? If it includes non-Israelites, is it just the Israelites, the non-Israelites that I know? Uh, or does it include other Israelites as well? Does it include all non-Israelites? Uh, you know, this is a tough question. We've got to define this. How are you supposed to be a, a, obey a law if you don't even know who you're supposed to be, a, you know, considering to be your neighbor? I mean, and so we've got to discuss this on and on. And the nice thing about that is that as long as you're discussing it, you don't need to actually get around to doing it. So you have all these wonderful discussions. It's the oldest trick in the book, folks. Uh, you know, if there's something in the Bible that you clearly don't want to obey, obey make it complicated and confusing. Just just bring a lot of ambiguity to it. Obfuscate the thing, you know, and, and, and get into long discussions about it. Don't mean to step on any toes, but what exactly is fornication? I mean, how far can you go? First base, second base, what are you talking about here? We got it, you know, we, I, I, I don't know how, well, who knows? You got to parse the verb and look at all the contingencies and all that. Uh, you know, we'll have to, when, when we finally figure it out, we'll get on to obeying it. In the meantime, not so much. Or, or uh, what exactly, who, who is our enemy? Who is our enemy? We have to define this. When Jesus says, love your enemy, hmm, there must be exception clauses in there. And so let's look at that. And when he says, don't engage in violence, don't retaliate, what does that exactly mean? I mean, can, can, you, can you get in the way? Can you... And see, there's, legit, there's legitimate questions, and there are legitimate ambiguities. But, but folks, what can be driving this is that we just want to have premarital sex, and we want to go out and own a gun so we can pop off the guy who's going to break into our house, and we want to feel okay about it. So we justify ourselves by making things complicated. Isn't that special? See, Jesus sub brilliantly subverts all that nonsense. Just cuts through the thing. I don't know if you noticed it in this passage, but it's just brilliant. He does this all the time. Uh, the, the whole discussion starts with the guy saying, who is my neighbor? But it ends by Jesus asking the, the, the lawyer, so who do you think was a good neighbor? So he transforms a question into, uh, about they into a question about you. It's just brilliant. Uh, don't ask who is my neighbor. Ask who might be a neighbor to. That's the, and the answer to that is anybody you come upon uh, that's in need. Uh, that's what it is to be the, the good neighbor. It's just brilliant. There's no ambiguity here. You don't need to sit around and like wonder, oh gosh, who are they? You know, where, define they? You know, getting all those questions. No, no, just be a good neighbor to anyone that you find in need. And uh, if you're doing that, you'll be loving your neighbor as yourself. 
And if you're doing that, you'll be collapsing the us-them uh, mindset and manifesting the kingdom of God. Amen? Second thing is this. Um, Jesus holds up the Samaritan as the hero of the story. And the bad guys are the priest and the Levite. Now, he's talking to a Jewish audience. And to the Jewish audience, a priest and a Levite are the heroes. They're always heroes. They're religious heroes, heroes of the faith. You look up to these people. You respect them. You never disparage them. Samaritans, on the other hand, not so much. Samaritans, they, they were descendants of Jews who had uh, intermarried with Gentiles. And, and so the Orthodox Jews in Jerusalem, they, they, they saw these folks as half-breeds. That's the way they would refer to them. And, and they were despised more than Gentiles. A lot of prejudice against Samaritans. So when Jesus takes the lowly Samaritan and makes him the hero and takes the heroes of the priest and the Levite and makes them the bad guys, he is shocking his audience. Uh, this would have been really offensive to his, his first century audience. But he's doing this because uh, he's challenging their, their us-of-them mindset. He's confronting in a shocking way, jarring their prejudice. And he's doing that because he's, he's illustrating that in the kingdom, uh, we're, we're, there's not to be any of that kind of thinking, not to be any kind of judgments about people as a category, not to be any kind of a mental hierarchy in our brain where we rate some high and some low and some in and some out and some good and some bad. And we have all this evaluation kind of going on. Jesus is illustrating that in the kingdom, there's to be none of that. Uh, that that uh, there is no Samaritan versus the Levite or Samaritan versus the priest or Samaritan versus the Jew. In the kingdom, there's only people who have, without any merit, received outlandish hospitality from God and are called to extend that same hospitality to all others. That's the kingdom of God. And so all judgments need to be collapsed. All, they have to be rooted out of our brains. And uh, Jesus uses this shocking reversal to do that. The third thing I want us to see is that the, the Samaritan is the good neighbor because he was willing to make space. He was willing to let whatever business he was up to, he was willing to let it be interrupted to make space for this stranger who was in need. We don't know why the Levite or the priest or the Samaritan were on the road that day, but uh, you know, a Levite and a priest, these were important people. These were really important people, so they undoubtedly had important things to do. And uh, they were on task, and that's why they just did not have the time uh, to notice, to care about uh, this stranger who was in need. Um, so they went over to the other side of the road. And why did they do that? And the answer, it's obvious, is that if, 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 if they were to look at this guy, they too might be moved with pity. They would see how bad off he is, that he really does need some help. Um, and and that, would, that would make it harder to go on, and you'd feel guilty. Either you feel guilty or you stop and help the guy, but you don't want to stop and help the guy because they got important things to do. So the easiest thing is to avoid the issue altogether, go to the other side of the street. Just kind of not notice. And you can tell yourself a story about, you know, he probably wasn't that bad off. He probably tripped and fell or something, and he'll be fine. And you keep telling yourself that, and you can go about your merry way. Um, they, 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 they didn't go stay on the same side of the road because they didn't want to see the truth because the truth might obligate them to act. And that's what they don't want to do. But the Samaritan, he didn't go on the other side of the road. He was willing to look and willing to see because he was willing to act. He's willing to be moved by the plight of the stranger. He was willing to let that stranger's plight, his sorry state, get on the inside of him. And for a moment, think, how would you feel if you were in his shoes? And so he's moved to act towards him. And, and he's moved to share with him. 
He takes his own oil and wine and, 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 and cleans the wounds and bandages them up and he lifts the guy onto his donkey and that maybe wasn't easy. And, uh, and then he has to go out and find an inn and he has to uh, then put up money to, to help care for this guy. Uh, this is what hospitality is all about. And the story is a brilliant illustration of it. It's about being willing to be inconvenienced, uh, to have your business interrupted, about making space to empathize with the other and about sharing what you have with the other. That is what it is to be a neighbor, and we are called to be that towards anybody we find who is in need. The story also is a brilliant illustration of the, uh, the kind of obstacles we face in doing this. Uh, there's two of them in particular here. Number one, uh, we will be demotivated to help the stranger in need if we hold any kind of judgment about them. Uh, if there's a story we tell ourselves about them, oh, those kind of people just do that kind of thing, and that's why they're in this kind of trouble, so you make your own bed and you lie in it. Um, if, if, it's, and, and the shocking way Jesus tells this story, it, it, it forces a question on us. You know, do we look upon any people the way the Jews looked upon Samaritans? Do we have our own little like, hierarchy ranking system where we file some people as more important than other people and some as more deserving than other people and, and some as inside and some as outside? And, 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 and a good way to get at this is to ask the question, do you ever find yourself, and Holy Spirit help us be honest about this, ever using this phrase in your brain, in your self-talk, those people, those people, because that means you're looking at people not in terms of people, but as a category. Those people just. And it's a convenient thing because it gets us off the hook. You know, it's a, like, well, we're not obligated to do anything because those people, well, that's just what those people get themselves into. Um, and and uh, it's, it's a... Uh, it's a, it collapses that, that, that kingdom mindset that has an us without them. If, if any of that lands with you, I encourage you just to remember, remember, never forget the outlandish hospitality that God has lavished on you when you were far, far away and a stranger in desperate need. In light of what God has done for us and the sacrifice God was willing to make towards us, how can we not be willing to extend that same hospitality to, to, to all people at all times, anybody that we, we happen to come upon? Uh, even if you think they don't deserve it, but see, if you think you don't, they don't deserve it, it's because you've got a hierarchy in your brain, and you're ranking people. And after all, you didn't deserve it, and God gave it to you, so how could you ever use that as an excuse not to give it to somebody else? Amen? <laughs> but really, in the light of what God did for us, the, the, the deserved question should be taken off the table. <laughs> and, and remember that when Jesus died on the cross, he created one new humanity, right? He, he, he tore down the walls of division. He tore down the ranking system. Tore down, tore down the file system. Tore down all the categories. Rendered them null and void and utterly, utterly irrelevant. Uh, in, 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 in Jesus Christ, because of what he did on the cross, there's just people. There's just people. And we're to see people as people. And, and so we always teach around here that if you're only allowed one opinion about a stranger, and that is the one thing you know about them that's reliable is that they were worth Jesus dying for, and that means they have unsurpassable worth. It doesn't matter what you see or think you see in them. That's the one thing you know. And our first assignment as kingdom disciples is to agree with God. If we call him Lord, we can't disagree with him. And if he thought they were worth dying for, how can we not think they're worth sacrificing for? It's that simple. It's that simple. If there's anything, anything, anything that is antithetical, opposite, contradictory to the kingdom, it is prejudice. Any kind of prejudice. Uh, it's got to be collapsed and start seeing people in, in light of the cross, not in light of the judgments that you've inherited from the world. Okay, the second obstacle, second major obstacle that this story addresses is simply that we feel, we feel overwhelmingly busy. And, and we've got important things to do, just like 
the priest, and the Levite. Um, I mean, how, how are you supposed to have time for strangers when you've got to get, you know, Caitlin to the gymnastics meet, and you've got to get August to the soccer practice, and you've got to uh, go and shopping, and you've got to do cooking, and you've got work you've got to do, and there's chores you've got to do, the toilet is broken, the sink is, I'm being autobiographical here, by the way, and the sink is dripping, and, 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 and you know, and you've got bills to pay, and you've got kids to raise, and you've got in-laws to put up with, and you're supposed to go to church, and you've got to go to small groups, or, or growth groups, and you've got the volunteer ministries here, and, 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 and those TV shows that you really are committed to, there's so much to do, we're so busy. How are you supposed to have space for strangers? Strangers in need. And I wonder if sometimes we don't, because of that, walk on the other side of the road. We tend to live our life on task. We've always got a plan. We've always got an agenda, and we don't want things to interrupt it. And the easiest way to keep that from happening is to go the other side of the road. Because see, if you really see the need and the strangers around you, and they're all around us, if you really see that, if you let them on the inside, if you start to wonder, gosh, what would it be like to be in that situation? Well, that might begin to move you, it probably will, and that will obligate you to act. So you're either going to go about your day feeling guilty, or you're going to actually take time out to help the person, but that's going to interrupt your plans, which you don't want to do. Do we sometimes do that? Go walk on the other side of the road. Or maybe if you can afford it, just, just move there. And you don't have to ever see a stranger in need, you know? I'm just saying. Fortunately, none of us can do that. You can't get away wherever you live. I don't, you can be in a gated community, but you're aware of strangers in need. The question is, will you let them on the inside or not? Uh, let me say three things about that. Number one, uh, let's remember, let's never forget that we're talking about Jesus. Insofar as you did it to the least of these, you did it to me. And insofar as you didn't do it to the least of these, you didn't do it to me. Um, that means that this hospitality that we're talking about, folks, um, this isn't like a little incidental thing, kind of a nice footnote to the gospel, a little addendum, a little extra, nice little extra, a negotiable thing. Um, this isn't icing on the cake. If we're talking about Jesus, we're, we're talking about the heart of the gospel. This really is the heart of the gospel, replicating God's hospitality to us, to all other people. This is, so, so this has got to be a, a, a top priority for us. Uh, whatever it takes, we've got to make space. That's a slogan I'm going to come up with. Whatever it takes, we've got to make space. We've got to make space in the natural flow of our life. This is a non-negotiable. Accepting Jesus into our heart without accepting the stranger in need, you just it's self-contradictory. If you're accepting Jesus into your heart, you'll be accepting the stranger in need into your heart because the stranger in need is Jesus. Do the math. A second thing. I told you this is going to be convicting. I just like... Uh, okay, second thing is, is that, that uh, um, yeah, we feel overwhelmingly busy. I, I do, but we're actually not as busy as we think we are. Uh, here's a chart that uh, shows us what we do with our leisurely time. We, average America has almost average now five hours of leisurely time every day. And we spend it on watching TV, almost three hours. Uh, we do uh, relaxing and thinking 17 minutes. Uh, that's, I, 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 that surprises me. I didn't think we do that much. Um, <laughs> Playing games or being on the computer, uh, 25 minutes. Participating in sports or exercising, 18 minutes. Reading, 19 minutes. Uh, that's better than I thought, too. Socializing, communicating, 41 minutes. So there you go. We've got five, five hours, which I'm told is by historic standards almost unprecedented. Very few people have had, very few people groups have had this much leisure time. Now, if we have that much leisure time, why does it feel like we're so dang busy? And I've, I've read on this. Um, 
the best explanation I found, it really lands, I think, is, is this. That the reason why we, we feel so busy is because we, our, our leisure time is so important to us, we file it under an obligation category. It becomes one more gotta do. I gotta see that last episode of MASH or whatever you want. <laughs> I, I got it, you know, it, it, so it feels like I got to do, and so it, it becomes part of our busyness. It becomes, our, our leisure time becomes our, our busy time. I, I think that's, now we all need leisure time, right? We all need that. You go crazy without it. We need downtime, uh, uh, time to kick back. Uh, that's what the Sabbath is all about, and that's a principle that's still good to live by today. We, we, we got to have leisure time, but the question is, is, should that leisure time be so important to us that it gets filed as an obligation time? Are our priorities in order? Realize that everything we do, everything we do is a manifestation of our priorities. If you're doing something, I don't care what it is, it's because you thought it was worth doing as opposed to doing something else that you could be doing. Okay, so it's all about priorities. Uh, if we have, if we watch television three hours a day, and there's no judgment about that here, I'm just saying, if, if we're watching that three hours a day, it's because it's a high enough priority to us to invest three hours a day in. But by the same means, if we don't have space for the stranger in need, it's because it's not a priority. Uh, there's no getting around that. Um, and, and, and yet, if we've seen anything the last two weeks, it's that this has got to be a high priority because we're talking about Jesus. So how do we change our priorities? Uh, I think the key to the whole thing is this. Embrace the truth that the stranger is Jesus. The stranger in need is Jesus. Make that. And if your heart is for Jesus, your heart's going to be towards a stranger, and that will have a way of bumping down the other priorities. It's like if, if you take out a new hobby or, or a new task that's a high priority for you, something's going to get bumped off. Whether you do it intentionally or not, something's got to go because we all have a finite amount of time and space and energy. And so to grab onto that priority is going to bump off something else. Grab onto this priority. That insofar as you do it to the least of these, you're doing it to me. And if you have a heart for Jesus, you'll find yourself having a heart for the stranger in need, and you will make space for them. Amen? Amen? And so it's about evaluating our priorities. Um, and it, that leads to the third point, and that is that it, this doesn't mean, does not mean that we can't have boundaries. Point number three, you need boundaries. We all need boundaries. Boundaries for, for ourselves, boundaries for uh, our family, boundaries for our friends. If you don't have boundaries, you're going to burn out quickly. And you're going to harm your family and friends in, in the process. Uh, every author I read on this topic stressed the need to be honest about your limitations, your limits. Um, this, we're not talking about having a program here that we do occasionally. We're talking about a lifestyle. And they all, all these authors talk about hospitality as a sustainable lifestyle. You'll never sustain it if you don't have the boundaries in place and the limits there. And they may change over time. They will change over time. As you change, as your capacity to, to care changes and whatever. But you've got to be realistic about where you are right now. So the, this... Hospitality issues is not about being so hospitable that you don't have any boundaries around your family and friends. Uh, that's not the issue. It's about do we have space in our heart, in our mind, and in our lives that go beyond family and friends for the stranger in need? And are we willing to then look at it, not go over to the other side of the road, look at it, let it in, and be moved to, to respond to them? Being a neighbor is about noticing and caring about the other that's different from you, the stranger, and about being willing to share what you have to help meet the needs of that stranger and about to welcome them in so they're no longer a stranger. So Jesus said, 
We just saw, when I was hungry, you fed me. When I was thirsty, you gave me something to drink. When I was sick, you, visited, you, you, you took care of me. When I was in prison, you visited me. When I was naked, you shared your clothes. So we've got to honestly ask the question, in the regular flow of our life, is there anything that looks like that? Uh, last week we saw Jesus said, when you throw a party, a banquet, uh, go out and invite those who don't get invited to parties. Go out and invite the nobodies, the outcasts, the downtrodden, those who have others who are prejudiced against them. Uh, go out and invite the people that are outside your comfort zone, in your familiar zone. We've got to ask the question, disciples of Jesus, is there, in the regular flow of our life, is there anything that looks like that? And if there's very little or none, then we've got to ask the question, what are our priorities? Are we really seeing the stranger as Jesus? Uh, and, and we have to look, take an honest look at our life about what needs to change to make space? What needs to be a lower priority or maybe no priority at all in order to make space? We've got to be intentional about this. If we're changing a pattern of life and thought, and it, it won't come by accident. Um, it, has to, it takes intentionality. And so I encourage all of us to just su submit our lives to the Holy Spirit and say, Lord, show me how I can adjust this. And maybe talk this over with your community. Uh, what needs to be adjusted to make room for Jesus? Because that's what we're talking about. And there's no question that could be more important than that, is there? It will look different for every one of us. There's, there's, it's not like one size fits all. We're all different places and we live in different environments. So it's going to look different. Um, last week I mentioned about one way to start practicing hospitality is to get involved in a ministry here at the church. Uh, where you meet strangers and can welcome in strangers. It could be the children's ministry, which is a great way of being hospitable. Uh, but it could be, we've got a lot of other ministries out there as well. You could talk to the help desk, and they'll be glad to tell you what those are. Um, I've got some friends who are partner with this ministry that welcomes in Im immigrants to Minnesota. When people, uh, refugees move here, um, they don't know the culture. They don't know anything about what's going on here. And so you just befriend them and help them feel welcome here. And kind of, you know, as, as you have time, you, you, you allow them to, to, you know, have in on your life and just befriend them. Um, Arrive, uh, Arrive Ministries is, is one such ministry. It's just beautiful. There's some folks here that, that uh, volunteer in the neighborhood to help out elderly folks, cl you know, clean up their lawn, mow their lawn, rake the leaves or whatever. There's some who, who deliver meals uh, to, to people who are, who are shut-ins. Uh, there's some folks here who, who uh, attend this tap ministry that we've got once a month. That's a, right there. There you go. There you go. It, it, it stands for uh, tapping or touching all, tapping all possibilities. All right, all right. And it's just, you take people who've got disability labels, and you just come together with people who don't have those labels, and you have a party without labels. That's all. And it's beautiful. It's just a beautiful thing. Yeah. Because these folks tend to be quarantined. You know, they can't get quarantined off. And everyone walks on the other side of the street. We're saying, you know, we want to be on your side of the street and, and, and welcome into our house and celebrate that. In fact, we're having a meeting, a meeting this Friday. And so if you're not into the metal stuff that we're doing at the, at the O'Gara's, come, come to that. Have a party there. It's, it's a beautiful thing. Uh, Communitas is a ministry that uh, once a month or so goes out and just goes on the street downtown St. Paul or Minneapolis and throws parties for homeless people. That's a beautiful ministry to be involved in. It will look different for every one of us. But the question is, it will always look like hospitality. It will always, it will always reflect. It will always echo the kind of hospitality that God has shown to us. So can we have on a radar screen the other? Because God had us on his radar screen when he didn't have to. And um, yeah, what you do the least of these, you do to Jesus. Amen? Amen. Amen. Okay, uh, we're going to celebrate communion now. And how appropriate to celebrate communion after a series like this. 
Because the communion table is a reminder of hospitality. In fact, the Last Supper was a meal, and meals, sharing meals with others has been throughout history the primary way of showing hospitality to the stranger. You welcome in and you feed them. And so here we're at this common table, and it's all about hospitality. Here we remember what it costs God to show us hospitality when we are far away and strangers. Um, but here we also remember that he tells us to go and do likewise. This is a reminder of our call to be godly, to resemble God in the way we show hospitality to others. Uh, here at Woodland Hills, we have open communion, which simply means that if you're here and you want to take communion, take communion. Uh, we, we, we invite you to. Uh, Jesus didn't, didn't do any kind of theological background check on the Last Supper, and so we don't do any theological background check, okay? We live between you and, and the Holy Spirit. Um, we have uh, tables up here, two at the front, and then we got three in the middle aisle there, uh, that circle. And as we worship, go into a time of worship, I just encourage you to have your focus on, on, on God, be worshiping Him. And when you feel led, just get up and go and take the, the, the bread and the cup and uh, take the Lord's Supper. Uh, if you want to do it, with, if you have family and friends with you and you want to do it together, we encourage folks to do that as well. Don't have a lot of rules around this. But on the night in which he was betrayed, he took this bread ordinary bread and he broke it in front of them and said this bread is my body which is going to be broken for you so as often as you take this bread and eat of it do it in remembrance of me God is willing to be ripped asunder to make space for us and then he took the cup it was an ordinary cup and I like mine better than the chalice we're contemporizing and he said this cup is the cup of the new and everlasting covenant because this cup represents my blood which is going to be shed for you and so whenever you take this cup and drink of it, just remember that. The cost of God's hospitality. We're renewing our covenant here by remembering what God did for us and what he, by his grace, empowers us to do for others. So Holy Spirit, surround us right now. Infuse this time together with your spirit, with your love, with your hospitality. Seared into our hearts and minds your beauty, your love, your grace, and empower us to go and do likewise. In Jesus' name. Ah, it's just such a sweet presence here. Yeah, it's, yeah, I just say it's beautiful looking out at all you folks uh, and just everyone worshiping and. And it's just a, a beautiful thing. And we have a beautiful Lord who's making us beautiful, taking our rags and making something beautiful out of it. Amen? Amen. Uh, uh, I'd like to ask the prayer teams to come up here, and they'll be up at the front stage. If you're here this morning and have any need that could use prayer, I really encourage you to come and let these folks pray for you. Uh, and if you're this here this morning and, and you're not a, a committed disciple of Jesus, uh, but something's pulling on your heart that says you should check that out, I encourage you to come up here and talk to these folks, and they'd love to help you get started on walking with Christ. Uh, folks, whatever it takes, we've got to make space. Amen? Amen? He, we are the recipients of extravagant filial zania, extravagant hospitality. And it cost him everything to do it. And then he says to us, go and do likewise. So I send us out just by saying that, go and do likewise starting right now. Yeah. Go.